You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, good morning, everybody. Like Bevan mentioned, my name is Andrew, and I'm the student pastor here. So that means that I get to work with the junior high and high school students here at Seabreeze and their families. I'm excited to be here with you this morning. So I wanted to start off with a story just to give you a little context for my life, get to let you know me a little bit better. So when I was about 17, I hit a low point in my life and realized that the one thing I really hadn't done personally was, was actually live out my faith. I grew up in a Christian home. I was exposed to church and the Bible, but I lived my own way for a long time. When I was 17, it just wasn't working, guys. It really wasn't. And so I decided to get serious about God. I wanted to learn how to walk with him. And when I went to college, God was very gracious to me. He introduced me to, to several other college students who were super serious about their faith. And my sophomore year, I was introduced to the idea of sharing my faith with other people. It's something that I hadn't grown up knowing how to do. But I had a mentor who was he was just so, he was so passionate about sharing his faith, and that rubbed off on me. In fact, he, he gave me a book to read. I think this was one of my first nonfiction books to read, other than school, okay? I read textbooks sometimes. <laughs> I promise I did. <laughs> so it was a book called The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven, and I'm pretty sure there are lots of things you can't do in heaven, like sin, but the idea was this. It was that the one thing you can't do in heaven is tell people about Jesus, so that motivated me, and I got jazzed about sharing my faith with other people. In fact, I joined a group on campus that went around um, and, and actually walked up to people and learned to share our faith as we tried to build relationships. It was something that was really, really stretching for me in my faith in learning to, to talk to people about who Jesus is in a normal way. But the whole time I did it, I had a secret fear. I was concerned that I would walk up to someone and they would have this gotcha question, you know, that would like unravel my faith, and I'd just walk away from Jesus. But that question, it never came. I never had a question that I heard that, that rocked me to my core. Anytime I had a question that came up that I thought was a really good question that needed an answer, I actually found that whenever I, I looked into it, God had a really good answer. It was really compelling. But as I look back on my experience, I would say the one tactic that worked really well against me it was an emotional tactic that people used. They would try to shame me for believing in God. And let me tell you, it worked pretty well. I'll, I'll never forget, there's one time where I was talking with this student and someone else overheard what we were talking about. We were talking about faith. And he just walks up to me with this look on his face and this tone in his voice was like, I mean, you really believe that? Basically like, you idiot. <laughs> so that it made me want to avoid an entire floor of the, the campus dorms whenever I was you know, early on. But that is actually one of the reasons why we wanted to look at the theme verse for our series and make it Romans 1.16. You guys will notice this card on your seats. On the back, you'll find a verse that we're trying to memorize together. Romans 1.16 is really helpful. I found that this was one of those verses that comes back for me over and over and over again. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And I mean, there are lots of reasons why we want to memorize this verse during the Gen Z series, but it's an important reminder for us that God holds the power to change a heart, but we have the responsibility to share the message. I mean, we should, should be unashamed of the gospel, and we should share it with other people. 
Because, I mean, it's true. So we want to figure out how to take that message of the gospel to the future. So that's why we're doing this Gen Z series. Last week, we started this series looking at what makes this generation unique, and then spending some of our time being reminded about how actually at our core, we're all the same. So I'd like to recap a little bit of last week before we get started here today. Now, just a reminder, Gen Z is anyone born between 1997 and 2012. That means it's anyone right now that's alive, ages 10 to 25. And we're looking at Gen Z because there is a massive cultural shift that has taken place in the nation that that has really affected this generation specifically. So last week, we looked at how Gen Z is a spiritual blank slate. And what we mean by that is that they're the first post-Christian generation here in the U.S. And all that means is that they've grown up largely outside of the church. They, They only know what happens here because of what they've seen in the media or heard from their friends. They don't have personal experience with Jesus, by and large. Also, God isn't a factor in their decision-making or their questions of morality. It's a big deal for them to be the first post-Christian generation here in the U.S. Then we also looked at how Gen Z has come of age in the digital age. They've always had access to all the information that the internet can provide, and it has shaped the way they think and the way they view the world. It's a big deal that they've grown up in the digital revolution. It's taken place during their time. And then we also were reminded how at our core we're all the same, that our hearts are dead, and we need God to give us a new heart. We need a new heart from God, which basically means that we're all broken on the inside out. We can't fix our problem, because our problem ultimately is sin. We need God to forgive us and give us a new heart. We need his help to change us from the inside out. And so today, I would really like to take a deeper look at some of the characteristics of Gen Z that affect the kind of questions they ask about faith and truth, and then we'll look at the two questions that every single person needs to answer in their lifetime. So Gen Z, the first thing I want to look at is that they are apathetic towards faith. Now the word apathy sounds kind of sad. I guess it kind of is. It means there's just a lack of interest or enthusiasm or concern. So when we say they're apathetic towards faith, they're just not jazzed about Jesus. They don't get what the fuss is all about. And I think there seem to be a couple of main contributing factors. Um, I mean, it's important to remember that the the generation we're talking about is 10 to 25-year-olds. So part of this is life stage. I'm sure you all remember, especially the teen years, that it it was cool to not care right? Like if the most amazing thing happened to you, you're supposed to play it off like, yeah, no big deal. I thought that would happen. You had no idea that it was going to happen, but you're like, yeah, it's fine. I meant to do that, you know? So there's a life stage thing that's happening here. And that, I mean, that's a factor. But I would say the statistics show us that the biggest factor is that they just, they don't see the value of church. A poll was done of Gen Z asking, hey, why don't you go to church? I put that poll up here for you guys, and it shows that 59% of Gen Z's say they just don't see that church is personally relevant to them. They just don't get it. So is, is the church somehow failing young people? I would just say no. The statistics don't show that either. For those in Gen Z who do go to church, it's a very different story. I'll show you this statistic. It says 82% of young people who attend church, it says that they find it relevant and they find answers to live a meaningful life. And so the issue, as we look, isn't the church. Gen Z's apathy towards faith comes from a lack of perspective. 
even a lack of information about what actually happens here. From the outside of the faith looking in, they just don't know enough about church to understand it. And how could they? I mean, they haven't experienced it. They probably don't even know someone who attends church. Or if they do, they don't know they attend church because this generation is also told, just focus on your stuff, your beliefs, and don't talk about church with other people. And actually, the statistics kind of back that up. For many in Gen Z, they're just focused on personal achievement and their hobbies. We see this all the time. Like, so many sporting events happen I mean, we live, especially us in Southern California, one of the places where you can play pretty much any sport year-round except for hockey because it requires it to be cold, right? So you can do pretty much anything else here. So you'll see on the graphs that it shows that 43% say that achievement was how they got their sense of self, and 42% say hobbies. So this is where they're getting their personal identity. It's in the stuff that they're doing and how good they are at it. So I think... Realistically, this apathy is just, they're focused on hobbies and stuff. Jesus doesn't make their personal calendars. And the question that this causes them really to ask about faith whenever they hear about it, it's, they ask, why should it matter to me? The focus is is on, why is this relevant? So that's the first thing I want to look at. The second for Gen Z is that Gen Z is averse to offending others. This is super, super important. And as I studied Gen Z, I used multiple resources, but one of the ones that I used that I really have appreciated uh, comes from Barna Group. Barna Group is a research group that focuses on the intersection of faith and culture. These are a couple of their studies that I use. They're super helpful as I was getting some of these statistics. And as they performed the research, it was just fascinating. They had various focus groups that they had come in and answer the questions in person. And so at the beginning of the study, in the preface, they included this note that I wanted to read to you all. I think it it captures this idea really well. It says, in focus groups for this study, Barna researchers, researchers heard time and again from teens, I don't know, I'm so confused, and similar remarks in answer to seemingly basic questions like, who is Jesus? You will also see in this report that not sure is a popular opinion or option on a majority of multiple choice questions. Many teens are deeply reluctant to make declarative statements about anything that could cause offense, and thus they struggle with anxiety and indecision when it's time to give an answer or it's a time to act on it. This is a big deal. And this this concern for offense, it actually comes from Gen Z's view on what the truth actually is. So I want to show you what the official dictionary definition of truth is. I would say this is the historically accepted definition. It says, that which is in accordance with fact or reality. So truth is tied inseparably from fact and reality. In fact, it's just how you're talking about fact and reality. But for Gen Z, many viewed truth as a personal preference, and they believe it's actually unknowable. Lots of them think just, I, you can't know. And how they arrived at that conclusion, it kind of makes sense. They have so much access to information, other faiths, so many different worldviews that are just bombarding them. So the easiest position to take is, that's fine, they're all true. Right? That's the one that doesn't cause offense. That's the one that reduces conflict. It's just, it's a personal preference. They don't have to make a definitive statement that, yes, this is true, no, that is false. So practically, for Gen Z, truth has been redefined as opinion. It makes it easier to accept or reject without offending 
And actually, in one of these focus groups, one of the young participants summarized their view on truth this way. I thought it was really helpful. It says, there is no such thing as truth, but there are facts. People can believe whatever truth they want. There is always room for truth to change. And that is a fundamental shift in the definition of the word truth. So now you have these categories, fact and truth. Rather than them being inseparable, they are separated. So, I mean, gravity is a fact. It's painful but not offensive, right? Like, no one would say, gravity always gets its way. How selfish. You know, like, it just, it affects us all the same. But once we begin to form statements about morality, truth, even history and people, eternity for sure, we, we journey into offensive territory. The guards go up. And then I don't have to hear it because I believe what's true for me. In the fight against offensiveness, Gen Z often loses truthfulness. And this causes Gen Z to ask a different question about what's true. They ask, what is true for me? And instead of the question, what is the truth? It's a little different, but it's really significant. But this isn't just Gen Z that's experiencing this. We're all seeing this happen in our culture. One of the big differences is this is all Gen Z knows. They've grown up in an environment where truth has always been relative, undefinable, personal. They have no other reference point to piece their belief together. It's always changing. I mean, growing up around the church, I understood that there was a moral standard, and I, I knew exactly where to go to find it, and I knew that I was just ignoring it when I did wrong, right? Like, like I, knew there was, I knew I was doing wrong because of the definition, but for many, there's no reference point for what is true. I mean, during their formative years, they're trying to piece life together from all the changing opinions about, like, what is okay and what is not okay. I mean, just imagine one day being totally accepted because what you believe is true, and then the next day it's offensive and you have to apologize for it. That would be so difficult. I, was, I would say that's a very confusing environment to grow up in. So people will look inward for the truth. They try to define it from their experiences. Or what happens a lot is many people avoid drawing a firm conclusion altogether. They're just like, I don't need to think about it. It's not important. Focus on the stuff that I'm doing and the hobbies that I have. And those who do believe, those who have decided to follow Jesus, they believe in truth, they're pressured really to keep it to themselves. It's a, it's a cultural pressure to keep it to themselves. And Gen Z, I mean, they've grown up in this environment, but you don't have to be in Gen Z to be, I mean, confused or ashamed about what is true. This happens, I think, to many of us. I mean, who hasn't been embarrassed to share an unpopular opinion I'm, or to share thoughts about something knowing people won't like it? I mean, maybe you have an aunt or an uncle that you just don't call anymore because they're on the other side of the political aisle. You know, I don't know. Maybe you don't want to bring up Jesus and be that, like, super spiritual neighbor right? You don't want to be weird. Romans 1.16, in, in these cases, I think comes in really, really handy. It reminds us to not let shame or embarrassment keep us from speaking up about the important things, like what God has done, who he is. Because what people believe about Jesus in this life, it has eternal consequences. And that's true for Gen Z and everyone else. And so the second half of our time together I want to look at the two questions that everyone must answer in this lifetime. And the first, it's pretty simple. Who do I believe Jesus is? 
Now, I want to share a video with you where people were asked, who is Jesus? This was done in 2017 in New York. I think it's really fascinating. Pay attention to how they answer the questions. Let's roll the video. Historical figure? I don't know. I think he was just a person. I don't know. Just a normal person like us? He was a selfless person. I have no clue. He was a man. I think he was marketing genius because he got people to believe him. I don't, I don't think he's the son of God. I don't, don't believe that at all. If David Copperfield was in the day of Jesus, he would be Jesus. I'm pretty sure he existed. Like, I'm not going to say that he didn't exist. He was God's son, but so was Gandhi, and so was... Muhammad and so is, you know, we're all God's children. Jesus is someone I pray to. Well, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, um, and he, to me, is the, like, symbol of just ultimate forgiveness and ultimate love. He's sort of that, like, constant figure in my life. Jesus is also Isa in Arabic, and he was a messenger as well. He was just extremely enlightened, like, religiously and morally. Was somebody that um, just tried to um, impart wisdom on others and um, make the world a better place. I think he saw something that a lot of people didn't see and still don't see in others. And I, I think that's just a lot of love and, and hope. Jesus sort of seemed like an ominous uh, figure. You know, he just, he, he was God and it was hard to relate to him. But I think as I've grown in my faith a lot, I've really started to see Jesus as my closest friend. So I think the takeaways from this video are fascinating. First thing, I'll point out, the generations, actually, they answered the questions differently. I would say the younger generations, especially the youngest ones that I saw, they weren't confident in their answers. Within, like, I think two of the first three young girls said, I don't know. You know, they seemed a little insecure about their answer. They didn't want to actually say it on video, necessarily, who they believed Jesus was. But then the older generation, they used definitive, matter-of-fact statements. They said, this is who Jesus is. He was a prophet, or he's the same as Gandhi or Mahavan. Even Pigeon Guy was confident that Jesus was a magician, right? <laughs> you know, so very confident in their answers. And they all had a little bit of a specific opinion. Another takeaway from the video is that there are just lots of opinions about who Jesus is. And a lot of those sounded like deep, you know? He was a, I mean... Most of them thought he was a real person. Sounded like he was a good dude, you know. He was a ma magician, maybe, or a prophet for some, their, their savior. But these opinions about Jesus, they're not new. S people thought similar things about Jesus in his day, and so I want to share Matthew 16, verses 13 through 14 with you. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? It's another name for Jesus. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So he wanted to know, who did people say Jesus was? Just the general idea. What's the cultural idea of who Jesus was at that time when he was alive? I mean, some, basically the categories were like political or national reformer, messenger from God or a prophet. But those, even in his time, were just general thoughts and opinions of the time about him. But Jesus really wanted to know what his closest friends really believed about him. And so he followed that up with this question in Matthew 16, 15. He says, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? 
That's the question Jesus wants each one of us to answer. He really did live 2,000 years ago, and there's a lot of confusion at large about who he is. And you can even tell from the answers we heard that a lot of people believe a lot of different things, and they can sound smart, they can sound intelligent or spiritual, but each one of us needs to do our due diligence. We need to look at the facts for ourselves and then make a decision about what we believe about Jesus. Why? Because people's idea about Jesus and what he claimed about himself are very different things. So Jesus did not claim to be a political leader or a good teacher or a morally enlightened teacher. Jesus claimed to be God. If any one of us claimed that today, like people would look at us like we were nuts. And in Jesus' time, if you made this claim, you were supposed to be killed. It was blasphemy. It was something that was said against God, and it came with the death penalty. You don't just throw that one out there, right? Like, you really need to believe it. So I want to show us one of Jesus' claims. It comes in this conversation he's having with his disciples. In Matthew 16, 15 through 7, he says, But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. No one in Jesus' time missed the significance about him claiming to be God's son. It was the same as claiming to be equal with God. Jesus was basically saying, You're right, Peter, I am God. In fact, you read in the New Testament and the four stories of Jesus' life all the time that, that his opponents tried to kill him because they knew that when Jesus claimed that God was his father, that he was saying that he was equal with God. And he makes this claim a lot. For me, over the years, this has been a claim that I've struggled with the most. Even after I became a Christian, I would read some of these verses, and I would just be like, oh, is that what he really meant? The last thing I wanted to do was... Worship a guy rather than God. I knew that that was wrong. So I looked into that question every time it popped up. As I was reading the scriptures where it came across, if the question came up, I just addressed it. And every time I looked into the answer, I became more and more confident that Jesus really did claim that he was God in the flesh. And now I don't have a doubt that he claimed to be God. I think it's really, really clear from the Bible. And much more than Jesus just saying he was God, he did things that only God should do. Here's an example. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was tempted by the devil. This was early on, right before his public ministry started. And the devil would tempt Jesus, and Jesus would shut him down by quoting Scripture from the Old Testament. Another reason why Scripture memory is super helpful. But in Matthew 4, 8 through 10, we see this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus made it really clear. You only worship God and you only serve him and his purposes. No one else should hold God's place in your life. And then yet, at the end of the book of Matthew, just a few years later in Jesus' life, we see this scene in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 17. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. When they saw him, they worshipped him. This was a big no-no in their time. 
mean, most of his disciples were Jewish men. And if, if Jesus wasn't God, then they were knowingly giving worship to a person instead of God and breaking the very first commandment God gave them, that you should have no other God before him. This tells me that they really did believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. And it's moments like this in the scripture that helped me come to terms with Jesus' claims about being God. I mean, what would drive a bunch of devout Jewish men to worship Jesus? I mean, it had to be that they believed he was God. So I can too. If they believe that Jesus was God, I can too. That was really helpful for me. It was also really helpful for me to think through the claim logically. So I actually wanted to share a synopsis of my thinking about this. For the next few minutes, welcome to my brain, okay? So here's the first thought. Okay, it's clear from the Bible that Jesus said he was God, right? There are really only two options with that claim. Either he was God or Jesus was not God. So I was like, okay, let's look into those two. Let's start with the Jesus is not God one. So if Jesus is not God, then there are two possibilities. Either he knew it or he didn't know it and sincerely believed it, right? Either he did know that he was not God or he was sincerely convinced that he was. So if he knew he wasn't God and told people that he was, then he was intentionally lying. And that would make him a liar. That's not what good men do. They don't lie. And then I thought for a while, okay, actually billions of people have decided to follow Jesus over the last 2,000 years, and many have even died for their belief in Jesus. So not only would that be a lie, that would be one of the cruelest lies in human history. So that's not good. That would mean that he's certainly not the good part of a good teacher. So the second part, okay, let's consider if he sincerely thought that he was God and he wasn't, that would mean that he had lost touch with reality in a major way, right? We'd call him crazy. He'd be a lunatic. Then what he taught, I mean, it couldn't be trusted, so then he wouldn't actually be the teacher part of the good teacher. And then I was like, okay, but is this what people actually thought? Because if he had lost touch re with reality, there would have to be some record of how he lost touch with reality. And so as I looked at the New Testament, no, there's no evidence that anyone in Jesus' day actually believed that he wasn't in touch with reality. In fact, his harshest opponents, considered, didn't, they never considered him to be a crazy person. At the beginning, when Jesus first came on the scene, some of them were like, man, this guy's a good teacher. He speaks with authority from God. And then later, as they started to get angry at him, they call him like a blasphemer from the devil, but they never said, you're a wacko, dude. Well, they wouldn't say that anyway, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so my verdict was this, that as much as people want to call Jesus a good teacher and nothing more, I don't think that there's room for that argument if you look at the evidence. So the final option is that Jesus really is who he said he was. He really is God. Then all of what he said would be true, which makes him our Lord. He's our boss. He's our leader. If he is God, then he is the one that is over everything. I mean, what would make his disciples willing to risk their lives to worship Jesus and then follow him in a really hostile environment? What what proved that he was God to them and made his claims true? Well, I mean, it's the fact that he rose from the dead, that Jesus rose from the dead. This scene in Matthew at the end that we just looked at, this actually happens after the disciples saw Jesus brutally murdered and then alive again. They saw his death firsthand, and it devastated them. And then they saw him with their own eyes alive, and so they fell and worshiped. I mean, that sealed it for me. 
Based on the best resources we have on the history of the time, Jesus claimed that he was God. He died. He came back to life and was seen by eyewitnesses who would then be willing to risk their lives and even in the future die for him. That, that told me, okay, Jesus really is God in the flesh. So that leads us to the second question that everyone really must answer. It's what are the implications for my life? After you look into who Jesus is, you must ask, what, what are the implications for me? What am I going to do about it? And this is actually where most people get hung up. If Jesus is God, then he's the one that's in charge, right? His claims about life in general are actually about my life and your life, my purpose and your purpose. He, he literally says he died and rose again so that, that we live for him now. We have to give him our lives, and then he's in the driver's seat. And practically what that means is that when we follow Jesus, he really starts to change things. And that's uncomfortable. One of the things that God changed for me was my mouth. I started swearing, cussing, whatever we call it now, when I was in the second grade. You know, I swore like a sailor, and I apologize to anyone in the Navy. You get a bad rap. But I, I used such harsh and unwholesome language. And then I got around some people that were serious about God, and I noticed, like, oh, their language is different. And then as I read the scriptures, it was really clear that I shouldn't let unwholesome words come out of my mouth. In fact, Ephesians 4.29, it's pretty clear. I was like, oh, no unwholesome words. Okay, Jesus, well, let's get started on that so my friends don't look at me weird. And so he did. He helped me radically change my words from the inside out. So now that when I stub my toe, only grunts and angry noises come out instead of bad words. I mean, it's great. And that's one of the ways that Jesus has started changing my life from the very beginning of being serious about walking with him. But ultimately, people tend to reject Jesus because they don't want to hand over the driver's seat of their lives. I mean, that's regardless of generation. They just don't want to hand over control. They want their lives to be about them and what they want to do. But what's unique about this generation, Gen Z, is that they're so distracted by their pursuits that they don't even think to look into the evidence or looking into who Jesus is and actually seeing if what people say is true about him. It doesn't even get on their radar because even if they might have some Christian friends, they don't bring Jesus up. Maybe they don't know anyone who actually knows who Jesus is. And what's sad is that the Christians specifically, they feel like they can't open their mouths. I mean, the, the pressure that young people are on to, to keep the truth to themselves, it's, it's pretty immense. But I think if we're honest, it's not just this generation that feels like they need to keep their mouth shut. This is something that all of us experience. But I think for many of us, there are times in our lives where we're just afraid to open our mouths about who Jesus is and even ask simple questions about what other people believe because we're, we either feel unequipped or maybe we actually are ashamed of what we believe. But I want to encourage you, the most loving thing that you can do for your friends is talk to them about Jesus. A good, a good friend of mine once told me that awkward conversations change lives. And it might feel awkward to bring up Jesus in this day and age, but it's those conversations that will lead to life changes. People's thoughts and ideas are challenged by questions about who Jesus actually is. It's when we see, you know, the, maybe the light bulb turn on or people starting to really think. They need the message of the gospel. They need the power of God to transform them from the inside out. People, I, I really do believe that, that they need the opportunity to, to examine the evidence and answer the question 
that we all must answer. Who do I believe Jesus is? And then ask the next question, what are the implications for my life? For those of you who may be on the fence, you will never have enough information to answer every single question, but you can know enough to make a decision. And then for everyone else, just a reminder, the message of God's love and forgiveness is for every person across generations at all times. People need a loving friend who can ask them serious questions about what they believe about Jesus. So I'm excited to continue the series with you all. I'm excited about what God is doing uh, in our church with Generation Z and the future. So I would ask you guys, if you want to, please join me in the student building after this. I'm happy to answer questions about the project and explain what we're going to be doing in the spaces. I'd love to connect with some of you over there. But for now, let's pray. God, thank you so much that um, your truth is true, that it's not a matter of personal preference, but that it actually lines up with reality. God, I do pray that you give each one of us courage to ask the question, who do we really believe you are, Jesus? And then settle it. And then ask, you know, what are the, the implications for our lives? God, what do we need to do about that truth? God, I ask that for each one of us, you would give us next steps this week so that we can actually apply what we've heard today, not just for Gen Z, but in, in our own relationships and in the own the relationships and friendships you've given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.